Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and Pastor Charles Roberts. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Out of the Question podcast. In Philippians 4.8, the Apostle Paul gives us what's often called a finally instruction, something he really wants his listeners or readers to grasp. It reads as follows. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. In our day, I've often heard this passage relegated to avoiding sexual sins and looking at pornography as though lust and pornography were the major errors of our day. But I believe Paul is referring to something much more. I think he's addressing the need to examine our premises to determine if they are in line with God's word. So Charles and I are going to discuss the idea of faulty premises as we examine how much of our lives are based on such. What do you have to say on premises and examining the faulty premises in our lives? Well, a premise is a starting point. You know, everybody in the project of knowledge or discussion about anything or there's some place that you start that's an assumed foundation about everything that's going to unfold whether it's which model car you prefer or which Italian restaurant is better than the other. Uh, you know, you're starting from some premise about what constitutes good food, what constitutes a good car. And this goes to the very heart of the importance of knowledge, wisdom, and truth. Now, that's not just a slogan. I mean, Scripture talks about these things. And the problem that we face and have faced since the beginning, since the fall of man in the garden, is that Satan comes along and gives us a faulty premise. Has God really said that? In other words, your mind is the absolute authority. Your mind is what determines the premise of all knowledge. Is a premise different than a presupposition? You know, I I had logic in college a thousand years ago, so uh, I'm using it obviously as if they were the same. Okay. So I think oftentimes people are not aware of what premises they're acting on. And I've always looked at presuppositions as something that kind of like, that's just the way it is. And as I was preparing for this, I couldn't help but think of the musical. I'm not sure how many people who are listening are familiar with it. It's Your Good Man, Charlie Brown. And if you know anything about Charlie Brown, the comic strip by Charles Schultz, Charlie Brown has this nemesis in Lucy who's always bossing him around and saying all sorts of things. And Lucy has a younger brother who carries a blanket, sucks his thumb, very insecure. And this particular segment of it is she's teaching him some little known facts. And the little known facts is that, uh, you know, snow and rain come up, they don't come down and all sorts of things. And Charlie Brown hears it and he's banging his head finally against a tree because he's so frustrating. This is not true. This is not true. Why are you telling him things that are not true? And then Linus says to Lucy, why is Charlie Brown 
banging his head against the tree. And she says, oh, that helps the tree grow better. <laughs> right. Well, I wondered how many premises we embrace as Christians. Now, we understand the world might embrace premises that aren't true, but we embrace things and we say like, well, that's just the way it is. And we have to go along with that. Do you think, like I alluded to, that Paul is telling us in Philippians to examine our premises regularly? I absolutely think he is. I mean, this is, again, in keeping with how I'm understanding that, uh, this is the constant exhortation of Holy Scripture, and certainly in Paul's writings. Romans, where he talks about being transformed by the renewal of your mind, the changing of your mind, which I would make the equivalent of thinking God's thoughts after him, assuming God's premises to be the absolute correct ones. And, you know, our our culture constantly gives us alternatives that it wants to operate from. But, you know, we were talking and you had been talking about uh, a recent judicial proceeding in Washington, an individual who was talking uh, like a a whistleblower, I guess it was. Yes, he was a whistleblower. You know, I I think the man you said alluded to the fact that he was a homosexual. Well, let me me just clarify here. He, he, As he's preparing to give his testimony on whatever he was going to reveal, he pointed out that he was a homosexual and that he and his husband, that his testimony shouldn't be given more weight because he's a married homosexual. He actually said that in a congressional hearing Hmm. and that he and his husband are concerned about what is true and right. Now, I overheard this and my thought was, huh? How can a person at war with God tell us what's true and right? And so whoever listened to him after that was operating on the premise that you can do things that are at war with God, but still have an appreciation for truth and what's right. See, I, I think this is in the same category. Uh, and I don't know if this, the word here is metaphysically speaking as to whether or not an atheist is correct when he or she says one plus one equals two. Or say, for example, um, a, a, an elderly person is crossing the street and another person, they're about to be run over by a truck and another person sees it and swoops in and rescues the elderly person and saves their lives. And it turns out uh, the person who saves them is a, a married homosexual who's also an atheist. Did mm-hmm. that person do something good? See, these are the kind of things that I think we're talking about. And, you know, they're in a little bit different category. But the point is, when the atheist says one plus one equals two, I mean, certainly he's correct in terms of logic and mathematics. But on the larger field of how he can even say that, given his worldview and his premises or presuppositions, he can't, actually. He's he's working on borrowed capital. There's nothing in his worldview that would allow him to properly and accurately say one plus one equals two. Because in a, in a godless world, without the absolute law word of God, uh, one plus one could just as equal, uh, easily equal 17. So I, I think the the thing that we are constantly challenged by is that we are constantly challenged to sort of give up the absolute authority of the word of God whenever it appears that, okay, this guy's going to give testimony. And even though he is a walking violation of God's truth, nevertheless, we can approve of him in this particular context. And, right. uh, 
the way I look at it is the only way that we would validate such things is if we have seeded the point that there is such a thing as good. When, when Jesus is approached at called good master, Jesus says, what is, what do you mean by good? Who's good? There's no one good except God. If we don't live with that premise, then we see this slippery slope become an avalanche where there are all sorts of things we're accepting as just the way they are, as opposed to the way they are in light of Deuteronomy 28. When you fail to obey God, this is what will happen. Yeah, and I want to uh, introduce a, 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 another biblical passage that I think speaks to this issue, and it's from Second Chronicles 19 about King Jehoshaphat. And in Second Chronicles 19, it tells us how he instituted judges in the land, and he charged them. And I'm going to just quote Second um, Chronicles 19, beginning at verse 6. He says to the judges, consider what you do, for you judge not for man, but for Jehovah, for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of Jehovah be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God, partiality or taking bribes. And then he you know, goes on to exhort them to, uh, thus you shall do in the fear of Jehovah in faithfulness and with your whole heart. I mean, this is this is about people who are going to be dealing with issues of law and justice in the society. And this king is exhorting them to, to operate from the standpoint of truth and justice. But right away, the question is that some people should ask, on what premise is the justice founded? What What are his assumptions about what he's telling them to do? What would they have understood him to be saying about uh, you you operate and you judge from the standpoint of truth? I'm not sure people today would have any concept of what that means. Oh, I think people today will think that justice is supposed to help man. Mm, I'm seeking justice. And the point that you made in that passage is a judge is answerable to God, not answerable to people. The law is answerable to God, not to a democratic majority. And so when you look at the justice system outlined in Scripture, it's very different than a humanistic justice system, even if a humanistic justice system sometimes gets things sort of right. Yeah, we can look at all kinds of uh, pagan societies and cultures, modern or ancient, uh, where there were legal standards that we would look at and say, well, that's good. They, they forbid theft. You know, they, they forbid man stealing or, or wife stealing or whatever it may be. But the, the premise on which that is forbidden has not necessarily anything to do with the truth of God's law word. And I think the danger that is presented to us, and it is a very subtle one, is that when we see the whistleblower testify before Congress, we're just supposed to ignore the, the, the elephant in the room, so to speak, about, you know, what his moral and sexual uh, standards are as if they aren't relevant at all. And by the same token, just to maybe bring in another example, there is a popular conservative TV talk show host who was recently given the boot, and a new biography has been published about him. Now, of course, he is immensely popular. I mean, millions and millions of viewers and followers and people hang on his every word. But, you know, the man who wrote his author- authorized biography is like your whistleblower. 
He's a married to another man, quote unquote, homosexual. Uh, and he was a frequent guest on that, on this man's uh, talk show when he was still on the air. Mm-hmm. So again, we have an example of someone who we're, we're sort of being enculturated into thinking he's a wonderful guy because he wrote this great biography of a man that we respect. So I, I think there's a little bit of a satanic asymmetrical warfare going on where we're being hoodwinked into thinking this person is okay or this whole situation is okay when we really shouldn't even get to first base with this. Right. It reminds me of that in early America, if a person wasn't a believer, he wasn't qualified to sit on a jury or to give testimony because perjury only means something if there's a standard of truth. And so we start not only throwing the baby out with the bathwater, we've ceased to think that we even need to take baths. In other words, it, it doesn't matter anymore as long as somebody's making a political statement that's in line with ours. Yeah, it's the throwing over of one absolute law standard for another, as in the case of the, the early history of these United States, as you indicated. The assumption was if a person was not in covenant with the true God of Scripture, they could not be trusted or relied upon to give true testimony or serve on a jury or whatever it may be. And by the same token now, we have a different theocratic structure in this country and in our culture, and it's just the opposite. Unless you're in line with the current deity and law order, you won't be listened to at all. It's just one form has replaced another, and the, the one that has replaced the true one, of course, is faulty, and it leads to the kind of chaos that we we see all around us. You know, but it raises the serious question about how a society, a family, a school, a church, you know, can proceed if the foundation is something other than the true word of God. And I think, I think, Andrea, it's important that we let people know we're not saying that even in a godly society, everyone is absolutely perfect. You know, that's not the point. That's not to say that, say, if we could go back to the colonial era in America or say, in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, where everybody was a true believer. I mean, whatever we want to style it, and that you had a jury of men who were absolutely Bible-believing Christians. Not to say that all of them were morally pure and perfect, not by any means. That just doesn't happen in the real world. But it is the assumption they are all formally committed to following God's truth, and insofar as they aren't morally pure— then they are seeking God's forgiveness to continue in the process of sanctification. What we're seeing today and what we're talking about are people who aren't anywhere near thinking that way about what they do. Right. And to go back to this example of the whistleblower, why was it, I was curious, why was it necessary to explain all that in his preamble? Well, he probably figured that somebody would call him on it or try to dismiss whatever he was going to say. But we just got his testimony that he is an unrepentant person who, according to the scripture, will have no place in the kingdom of heaven. So it was, it wasn't even so much that he was, although that would be an act of disobedience to God, but he proclaimed it as, that people shouldn't make his testimony more worthy because of this status, that all those other people who may not be like me, we should listen to them too on what they have to say. Now we have a relativistic point of view, and I dare say there are many believers who also call themselves conservatives would say, well, okay, 
I mean, nobody's perfect. It's just that he made an open declaration against the God of heaven. This is something we should take lightly. Well, apparently so in our culture today. And, uh, you know, I, I raised this question when you first brought this up to me a week or so ago. M- maybe you can share your thoughts about it because uh, I, I immediately compared it to the example, say, of uh, Bill Clinton, uh, somebody in office who is publicly shamed uh, or uh, caught in some sort of sexual sin, in his case, adultery. And the big chorus then was, well, you know, his his moral life sexually has nothing to do with his ability to function as president. So that shouldn't even enter into it. And, uh, you know, it, uh, I thought there might be some similarity in what you're talking about with the whistleblower. But what were your thoughts about that? Well, actually, there's a lot of similarity. I, I was having a conversation with a man at church who happens to be in the medical profession, and he was talking about how he's often called in personal injury cases to testify. And he made this statement, Charles, unapologetically, as a matter of fact, that he actually thought that my husband and I would go right on. He says, you know, I'd like to hire a Christian attorney, but you just can't because they want to do everything by the book and you want to win. And he said it with this big smile on his face. And then we proceeded to tell him how that wasn't true. And now we were in the midst of an uncomfortable conversation where he thought for sure we would agree with him. So his premise is, of course, you would ideally, in a perfect world where everybody was a Christian, hire a Christian attorney. But let's face it, you want to win a case for your client or whatever it is. So you find the guy who was, and he looked at me and he said, like, let's say your son, he doesn't know us, but he just said, like, if you have a son and he's in an accident and he kills somebody, you don't want him to get the full letter of the law. You want to find somebody who's going to get him off. And I was looking at this man like, why would you assume that would be my premise? And I think that goes to the heart of the the issue before us and whether it's a testimony before Congress by a whistleblower or, or whatever it may be. The premise that we operate from, the starting point in which we are thinking about judicial procedure, uh, marriage, family life, is so foundational. And it's unavoidable. There, there will always be premises on which people operate. But as Christians, we are required. We are exhorted. We, uh, it is demanded of us that we think according to Christ's thoughts and that our minds be renewed in Christ. And we operate from those premise, from that template, if you will. Right. And in, insofar as we don't, and we're constantly bom- being bombarded to not do it, then we end up with a less and less godly society and the things that result from it. How many times do you hear Christians say, look, I don't want to judge. I'm not judging because, of course, we're told you're not supposed to judge. Well, they know that verse, (laughs) but they don't know all the other places in Scripture. For example, in 1 Corinthians, where Paul acquaints the church that you are the governing body of the world. The saints will judge the world. Right. How does that comport with don't judge? We're supposed to judge righteous judgments, but I've heard, look, I don't want to judge. I don't know that person's heart. Well, the scripture never tells us to know somebody's heart because the heart is wickedly deceptive. Who can know it? So if you can't know your own, how on earth could I know anybody else's? But God's law regulates behavior, 
which then will stem from people's thoughts. So what you think and what you choose to say and what you choose not to say is governed by whether or not the word of God commands you to think, to speak, and then to act in another way. Yes. And as we, you know, move forward in life, in society, we come face to face with numerous occasions and opportunities where these things are presented to us as challenges. And it goes to the very heart of what it means to believe in the truth of God's word and what it means to be a Christian in the biblical sense. Now, we've talked about this in other discussions and other topics, but it keeps coming around to this very thing, at least as far as where we are in the culture today. I mean, we've had a culture in these United States that's largely been, for lack of a better terminology, Protestant evangelical. It has not been biblically reformed and theonomic. And so the attitude is, I need to get my soul saved, I need to believe in Jesus, and I, and so when I die, I'll go to heaven. Kingdom building is not part of my responsibility. I have that, that's some crazy idea. And if that's your premise, if that's your foundation, that, you know, our, our destiny is to be raptured away or to uh, go into some eternal disembodied existence playing a harp on a cloud, then that's going to govern how you operate and what you will accept. And th- the thing is, when you go from that standpoint, then all these other areas outside of your quote personal salvation, are wide open, and you've got to fill it with something. So in terms of education, I'm going to take whatever the local public school board tells me my children should learn, Uh, because the Bible doesn't have anything to say about that. The Bible is only telling me how to get to heaven. Uh, When it comes to politics, government, how to raise a family, sexuality, well, maybe it's okay if this man is a sodomite and he's, quote, married to another man. You know, at least he's willing to tell the truth about X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. And once you reach that point in a society, things have gone very bad indeed. And as Calcedon's president, Mark Rushduni, and his father before him uh, have stated many times, what we're witnessing is the absolute collapse of humanism and its uh, last days. And that's a tough spot to be in for us, but it's a necessary one for God's truth to keep going forward. Absolutely. And you think of the stuff that we accept as normal. Uh, my husband and I were having a conversation. I said, go back 50 years, 100 years, and ask people how many sexes are there. They would say two. Mm-hmm. All right. And people would have understood that gender is a literary device that would say wife is a female feminine noun, husband is a masculine noun, because a wife refers to a female and a husband refers to a male. You see this in all sorts of languages. I think of, you know, Spanish, for example. There Mm -hmm. are nouns that are considered feminine, nouns that are considered masculine, a a cat, a dog, whatever it is, but they're oriented to two genders. Well, now you have people, and, and I really even get on myself for LGBTQ. Why are we talking in terms of things that are being labeled by those who hate God. So instead of having a conversation and say, well, oh, that person is cisgender. Okay. The other side made up that term Mm -hmm. to promulgate a point of view. And if you start talking in those terms, 
then you're basically accepting the premise. And maybe this goes against the idea that Christians are supposed to be the smiling doormats and that somehow or other, when people walk all over us, they'll be brought into the kingdom of God. But how about just saying no, no. And I think of the whole controversy about the man who was swimming for the University of Pennsylvania. Where were the parents? Where was the school administration? Where was the faculty? Are we really to believe that all these people thought that that man was a woman? No, but they were accepting the premise that you can't say no to this. And when you don't say no to this, you end up agreeing with it. And then by agreeing with it, you have made it accepted practice. You know, I'm so glad that you brought this up because this this is, I think, a tremendously important issue. You know, in, in all modesty, I consider myself a reasonably intelligent person. Uh, I majored in philosophy in college. I've been to two different seminaries. Uh, I understand things reasonably well. But it wasn't until I was listening to a conservative, and I don't think the man claimed to be a Christian at all, radio talk show host about 25 years ago that I, I first understood the significance of what you just pointed out about the difference between sex and gender and how the latter is connected to linguistics. I mean, I'd studied French. I read Latin. I knew about male, female, and neuter cases of the words. And, you know, this guy pointed this out. He said, that's crazy. It, no, there, there are only two sexes, male and female. There aren't two genders. And ever since I heard that, I've thought, you know, I'm going to make this a cause. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm not going to give up on this because it's so patently, obviously true. And I've had numerous discussions with, I mean, solid Bible-believing Christians and people who think very much like we do on issues of the day. And they think that it's okay or at least permissible to keep talking about gender when what they really mean is sex because, you know, that that's how the current culture or I'm trying to get this point across. And really, the only way this humanistic pagan view of human sexuality can work is if you replace it with the idea of gender because that that's where it gets all multiplied, you know, uh, and you, you aren't limited by male and female sex. And that's one reason they don't like to use sex as the main word to refer uh, to the, the, the nature of a person. And so, but I think this is, this is a good example of how we seed territory. Uh, we adopt a premise, even if it's for the purpose of argument, that we ought to know if we don't is absolutely mistaken and contrary to God's word. And so I never... I, Maybe I try not to be obnoxious about it, but I try to point out every opportunity I get. Look, you mean sex, male, female sex, not gender. And it's amazing to me. Once in a while, I'll come across like a an application for something or other, and it will ask the question. And it still says, a few of them will still say, what is your sex, male or female? You know, check the box. Most of them, you know, have all the current crazy right. nonsense. Interesting enough, when you go to get lab work done or to donate blood or whatever, they want to know your sex, male or female. They don't have all that other stuff on mm -hmm. there. But let me point something out where we've talked about slippery slopes in the past. How did we get to the point where language stopped meaning what it meant? Well, being someone who taught grammar to my kids and has a good foundation in English grammar. There's certain things that when you're communicating, in order for it to make sense, there has to be agreement in number, 
gender and tense. So way back when everybody else would say, when man does blah, 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 he needs to do this. Nobody was confused that we weren't including in he men and women because human beings are men and women. We knew that. But then, wait a minute, what about the women? So then it became, well, if your child, if he or she, his or her, and now the language got cumbersome. So what happened? Your child, if your son does something or other, they do this and it's in everybody's speech now. So we started talking in such a way that there wasn't agreement in number, gender and um, tense. And so as a result, accommodation after accommodation is made to the point that now someone decides that their pronouns are they, them. <laughs> like, what does that mean? Are you telling me you're demon possessed? And so there's more of you than, than, you know, just one person. And I like to joke and say my pronouns are I and me because <laughs> those are the only pronouns that refer to me. So the slippery slope takes place. And then because we don't want to exclude women. So we'll say he, she, his, her. Now, because we don't want to misgender somebody. We'll ask them what your pronouns are. My husband laughs. He says, you know, the one good thing about all this, I never got it in school. I now understand pronouns. Well, you know, that that, that raises an interesting question. And I, I want to ask you this because you and I are the same age. Yeah. So you would remember back in the day, whether it be in, in church when you were younger or, or uh, say in the early 20th or mid 20th century, for you know a long time, most Bible translations and in common speech to refer to humanity as a whole, you use the phrase mankind. Now, I mean, being male, it never occurred to me that that term excluded anyone; that it was always understood to mean the entire human race. Exactly. But as and I'm not assuming a, an answer from you, but I'm just curious. I mean, did, did you ever think when you heard, say, when you were in your 20s or 30s or whatever, well, they they're not including me because they said mankind instead of humankind. Well, it's sort of like that social contagion of transgenderism that it sort of pops up. And so now we're going to say this was always the case, but people were oppressed. When people started pointing out that women are being excluded and women are, you know, are, are so put upon and everything else, then we started talking about humankind. Right. <laughs> like, oh, okay, humankind, as opposed to canine kind or feral. I mean, what were we talking about? So the language gets attacked. And of course, it's only a person who doesn't see it. Jesus Christ is the word made flesh. So language and word has a lot to do with it because the scriptures are God's word to us different than every other creature. So evolution isn't true because the Bible says it's not true. But now if we have to sort of entertain that not everybody believes that, quite frankly, does God care what everybody believes or is his word truth? Well, obviously, I think he does care and his word requires us to believe it or stand condemned before him, either in terms of dealing with the consequences of our individual and collective rebellion against his truth or in terms of our final judgment. I believe for myself, 
and I know other Christians who think this way, that the mechanics that Almighty God has built into his creation are what we call logic. And so logical thinking is tremendously important. One Reformed theologian pointed out that in John chapter 1, the term logos, in the beginning was the logos, uh, and the Logos was with God, that is a, one of several uh, ways that the term logic can be translated, Logos. God created an orderly, consistent world and consistent with his own character. And so it's it's no coincidence that the attack on God's order is an attack on logical, clear thinking. Now, I, I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not saying logic exists outside of God's creation or is something separate from God. I'm just saying I believe this is the way God created the world. And so the rebellion that we see, say, in the area of sexuality or in the area of judicial truth is also a rebellion against logical, clear thinking. I mean, it, you, you can, it's built into the story. You can't have more than two sexes. That's all there are, unless you're going to blur logic and come up with the kind of crazy nonsense that we've seen. G- getting back to what I had mentioned just before, I remember very clearly in a, a previous, quote, lifetime, I was a Roman Catholic and I was attending Mass at a Catholic church once, and I, I went to this church fairly regularly. And all of a sudden, I began to notice that one of the priests who had sort of a reputation of being, and this is back in the 80s, sort of a liberal type, I began to notice that whenever we would say the Nicene Creed, he changed the words, and even though the creed was clearly printed you know, in the, uh, the Missal in English, and it said Jesus was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man or was made man. Well, this priest was saying, and I, I heard, first time I heard it, I, I thought, did he really say that? He changed it to say and was made human. Now, that may seem like a simple thing, and Jesus was human, but he was specifically a man. And if that's a problem for you, then you've got a problem with, you know, God's divine revelation. And, and let me just say one more thing in, in terms of the created order that God has given us in creating male and female. I think it's interesting that one segment of paganism that attacks that idea is in a type of occult philosophy that denies that or, or wants to fuse male and female into this hermaphroditic sort of, I'll use the term, transgendered being. Yeah. So it gets back to the fact that if we don't know our status in Christ and we don't know that salvation isn't so that we'll have a nice day, that we are saved for a purpose, and that purpose is service in the kingdom of God, and that, as Paul says, we are to rule the world. Now, that is an abhorrent idea to some people. Isn't that pushing our way in? No, it's acting as the ambassadors that we're supposed to be. If we believe that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, then whose word should supersede his. And people forget that the reason the religious leaders of the day were literally hell-bent on getting rid of him is because he was asserting to them that their syncretism and their getting along with the Romans was, yeah, it might help them in the short term, but that wasn't God's plan. And so I've heard people say, well, that's fine if you're talking to Christians, but not everybody's a believer and they don't believe the same things you do. And my answer is, so what? If it's truth, it's truth. 
So do I have to have everybody agree with what God says is true before I can talk to them? Then it becomes that I'm going to persuade them to think I'm smart and they should listen to me as opposed to convict them of their rebellion against God and their need to repent. Yeah, that's part of the project that we have in terms of the proclamation of the message of the kingdom. Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ is a large part of what we do on an individual basis. But just as with the example of our earliest brothers and sisters in Christ in the Roman Empire, they didn't just simply curl up in a corner and cease to function. They went on with their lives, and they used these opportunities in a pagan evil society to move the kingdom forward bit by bit, person by person. And, you know, the result over a period of centuries was a Christian empire. For whatever its shortcomings, uh, it went from pagan to being Christian. Yes. And that, that continued to flourish. And I think this is part of our project today. And I challenge our listeners, if any of this sounds odd, then if you read in the first parts of John and Mark's Gospels, it's very clear that as Jesus began his earthly ministry, he went about preaching the kingdom of God. That was his mission. That was his ministry. And that's what we're called to do as well. So rather than a gospel of personal salvation, which is a byproduct of God's election. So God chooses you through faith and repentance. You become aware that you are among his chosen And now it's like, okay, so what do we do now? What we do now is not sit back and enjoy the fact that, oh, gee, we're not going to hell, that we work towards the idea that the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. And so I highly recommend, if people have not already purchased it, the one of the latest releases from Chalcedon, Dr. Rush Dooney's sermons on first and second Corinthians. I'm currently going through it now with my husband and it's interesting. You, you pick things up that by and large, like how many of us have not read through the book of Corinthians first and second, but when, when Dr. Rush Dooney takes and puts a magnifying glass and, and highlights certain things, he points out that, you know, the church could be considered a synagogue, right? Because the church was patterned very much after it, but Paul, chooses the word ecclesia, which means the assembly, which is a political term and was a political term within the empire. And that's why Christians went to the Colosseum. They were challenging the premises of Rome. Rome loved religion because it kept people in line. And the Pharisees figured out a good deal on how to work with the Romans so they'd maintain their authority, prestige, whatever. And the followers of Jesus Christ said, no, we have a king, and that king is Jesus. But we've lost sight of that. In other words, we become terrible ambassadors if we go to a different kingdom and start agreeing with that kingdom as opposed to the kingdom from where we've been sent. Andrew, I think that's so absolutely important and true. We have as Christians in this culture too long have had it easy, so to speak. And we are finding ourselves in a situation where that is changing and has changed. And so as things move forward, the Lord is expecting things from us that will test our fidelity to his truth, 
and the commitment that we have to pass along to others the vision of the establishment of Christ's kingdom in this world. We know that will happen. God's word assures us of it. And so we, above all people, ought to be hopeful and optimistic about the triumph of this kingdom message through history and in time. So in terms of what we see before our eyes in court proceedings or the other insane things that are happening in our culture, let's just be mindful of the fact that these are the sorts of things that happen when a culture is dying. But there are, nevertheless, the remnant of God's people within this culture who will move forward over time and rebuild and reconstruct it according to a biblical foundation. Indeed. And let me just add another passage where the apostles are asking Jesus to explain a parable. And he, he answers by saying, do you not perceive that whatsoever things come from without entereth into the man, it cannot defile him because it entereth not into his heart, but into the belly and goeth out in the draught, purging all meats. He says, that which comes out of a man, that defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. Well, if that doesn't sum up the current humanistic religious beliefs that are permeating, and we somehow or other hear this come out of people and say, well, no, I mean, they're not defiled because they agree with me on this point. We have to repent from, I think, trying to get along as opposed to endeavoring to be faithful. Yes, and the scripture exhorts us, and I'll just simply wind up my part of this, is that we are to examine ourselves to make sure to see that we are in the faith. And I think that's another way of saying, and I believe this too comes from 1 Corinthians, this idea of examining ourselves and also Second Corinthians, that another way of saying examine our premises. We must continually be doing this because of the uh, the warfare that we face with the pagan world outside. Let us be vigilant in that that effort. Agreed. All right. Well, I hope we've given our listeners something to think about. And what's always the case, Charles, is when we start thinking about what we're going to talk about, All of a sudden, if I'm reading in this book or reading this passage of scripture or having conversations, what we're talking about suddenly comes out and go, yes, it's just like that. And so I'm grateful that um, we get a chance to talk it out and maybe give people a chance to examine something that they might not have previously examined. Absolutely agree. All right. Out of the question podcast at gmail.com is how you get a hold of us. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.